Ah, good morning to you. Uh, I know some of you have been wondering where I've been, where I am, (laughs) and uh, it's so good to be back with you and to be able to preach the Word of God and proclaim His promises. I'm so glad for uh, the men and uh, that have stood in the pulpit and have done a wonderful job. And I thank the pastors and especially Dr. Polson for his uh, message last week during our anniversary. Very, very appropriate. Thank you so much. We praise the Lord for that. Uh, this week begins a new series of messages. Okay, as you know, we like to do things in series. And so this time it's on the series on the church, on the church. Uh, in this uh, technical name for this is ecclesiology, they call us, okay? But it's basically a study of what the Bible says about the church. And uh, as we will see, hopefully, the church is not merely some physical, material, institutional body of people, but really it's a spiritually living, breathing, growing organism. Uh, established by and empowered by God to accomplish his purposes on the earth. Now, if that definition sounds to you rather strange, it's because it is, because many people don't have that view of the scriptures, or they have lost it somewhere along the way. And so they've tended to identify churches with other things. But basically, the church is a spiritually living, breathing, growing organism, That has been established and empowered by God to do his purposes here on the earth. And if that is so, then the church takes on a whole different light. If this is so, and it is so, then the church becomes something very important to us. So that answers partly the question, then why is it so important that we learn and follow what the Bible says about the church? Well, let me give you some reasons that I've discovered. And that is because people need to know the church of the Bible, okay? The church of the Bible, both its visible and invisible side. You see, if God was the one who established this, if God was the architect and owner and leader of this church, then who better to tell us about the church than God himself? And he does this through the word of God. It's, uh, so to speak, it's, it's like buying something from somebody and just throwing out the manual and trying to figure it all out yourself, you see. But God has given us the manual for his church in his word. And so it's important for us to uh, build a church of the Bible. Because people, another reason is because people need to follow and keep the core message of the church, the core message of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul very succinctly says what is the message of the church in verses 1 to 4. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, it says. And that's the message of the church. The message of the church is Jesus Christ died and rose again from the grave for our sins, you see. Now, 
today, there are many messages that are coming forth from churches, such as we all ought to love one another and all of this. We ought to do good deeds and things like that. That's part of the message, but it's not the message. It's not the message. And so the church needs to get back to and keep the core message in the forefront. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to redeem mankind by dying on the cross and rising from the grave for our sins. There's different passages that come to mind when I think about the core message. And one of them that means so much to me, and I hope that it means much to you as well, is what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming in John chapter 1, verse 29. And he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just amazing? It just shocks you to the core to know that our sins can be forgiven and taken care of. And this is through Jesus Christ. So the reasons that we ought to be studying the Bible, so we want the church of the Bible, we want the church that God wants. People need to follow and keep uh, the core message of the church, which is Jesus Christ, but also because the role of the church is much more significant than we thought. You see, sometimes, I don't know what it is when you uh, approach people and you say, hey, would you like to come to church with me? And a person says, church? Isn't that where they do this and they do that? And that doesn't seem very appealing to me. You know, why should I go to church? You see? And so people in their minds don't come to church because they don't like you. It's not because they don't like church. It's because they don't understand the importance of a church. So what is the importance of the church? Well, let me just for a minute take you back into the Old Testament. In First Chronicle, 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And it's coming up on the screen, and you may be reading it right now. And let me set the stage for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, it talks about the time of the judges, okay? This was a very special time in the nation of Israel. It was 50 years after Solomon had died. Israel is now divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And King Asa was desperately trying to revive the, the, the kingdom of Judah. And get it spiritually back on track. And so the prophet of God comes to Asa and encourages him and tells him that he ought to press on. Now, if you want a summary of what the times were like during uh, this uh, time this was written, look at verses 5 and 6. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. And so this was a time of major distress. God permitted it to happen. And God wanted to, in a way, sort of let people see what would it be like if God were not in the picture, if you will. And so this was the situation, this was the environment. But it was also a time ripe for revival and renewal. And look at verses 3 to 4, because this gives us why they had fallen into such sad shape. For many days Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. And so the, the 
thing we want to notice in there is verses 3, and it says, without the true God. There was no intimate relationship with God Almighty. That was the first cause of their distress. The second one is found in the same verse, and without a teaching priest. No one was the voice of God, so people would, could interpret life from God's view and make godly choices. People were just left to run and do whatever they felt was right. And then, without law, there was no way to apply God's precepts and principles to the complex situations of life. There was no authority. Now, if you listen to that carefully, that description, doesn't it remind you of something? It reminds you a lot of the times that we live in today, doesn't it? Nation crushing nations, so on and so forth. People just in major distress. Because why? Because there was no presence of God. There was no teaching about God. There was no law of God that was reigning supreme. And that's what the church does, you see. The church is the presence of God. And it should be supplying, it should be nurturing, it should be encouraging all three of these areas. You see, when these things are absent, society just goes down and down and down. It goes into a death spiral. And so this is why it's so important. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. The end of the book of Judges. You know what it says? You know how bad the times were after Joshua? It says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When there's no law, when there's no teaching, when there's no intimate relationship with God, then society goes into a death spiral. So that's why the church is so important, folks. It stands to be the presence of God in this world. It's not just a building. It's not just a gathering of people who, 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 who smile at each other and all of this. It's more than that. It is God's agent on a divine mission to, uh, for God to save humanity from self-destruction and from God's wrath. Do you get the importance of that? Do you understand that? Do you understand why it's so important that GBC and so many others like it take up the mantle that God and, and the mission that God has given to us? You see, it's more important than first thought. People who say, ah, we can do without church. Hey, we can do without the presence of Christians. They do not know what they're asking for. They do not know what they're asking for. The church is important. So, that's why we ought to study what God, what the Bible says, what God says through the Bible about the church. Now, to help us on this, we have to clear up a few things. First of all, there's some foundational truths about church, okay? The English word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And what does that mean? It means called out ones, okay? It means the called out ones, the ones that God has chosen. Or it can mean assembly, all right? But in, over time, as it began to be used in the Bible, it came to refer to the gathering of believers. In the Bible, the word church is used in two ways. First, in reference to the universal church, to the universal church. It is that spiritual body of which Christ is the head and is composed of all those who have accepted Christ as Savior from the day of Pentecost till he comes again in the rapture. 
when he comes to get his church in the air and takes them to be with him in heaven. So this is the universal church. Now, the second way it's used is the local church. The local church. This is like GBC. GBC is the local church. And so it's, uh, it's a group of professing believers in Christ who have organized themselves for the purpose of being God's people and doing God's will. Okay? Being God's people and doing God's will. So, you see where the connection is? We are part of the local church. So, it's important for us to understand what the Bible says about the local church. And the Bible says quite a bit. And so, this is where we will be launching off. We will learn more specifics about the church in the rest of the series, but these basic truths will help get us started. So, make no mistake, we're talking here about the local church, okay? We're not going to talk about the universal church. And so, where does our study begin? It begins in Matthew chapter 16. So, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And the point why we're starting here is because the mission of the church begin began with a promise. It began with a promise, okay? Actually, not just a promise, but many promises from God. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13 and 14, you notice here that Jesus asked his disciples several important questions. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he really asked them a, a really special question. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Whoa. And then Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This question remains to be one of the greatest questions in all the world. That's not, how do you make money? It's not, how do you get through this day? It's not those kinds of questions, but who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? This question becomes so important. Why? Because some people have taken it that Jesus is just a teacher. Jesus was just a revolutionary in his day, so to speak, and so on and so forth. But the word of God says that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that would come and save God's people from their sins, you see? And that makes him very special. And if Christ is who he says he is, then he is to be believed and received as Savior from our sins and Lord of our lives. You see, you can't leave Jesus alone. You can't, you can just outright reject him. You can ignore him. But to do so, you take your life into your own hands. You see, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of of the living God. I was at one of our uh, uh, college university meetings back in the United States, and uh, one of the, the, the members of our church was, was the, the sponsor of that group. He was the one who oversaw that group. 
And he, he was a tr- quite an evangelist in his own way. He's, he's kind of an intellectual type. So this, this ministry fit him like a glove. And so he would go up to people and he would ask them a question. Now, what question do you think he asked people when he was trying to get them to talk about Christ? Perhaps some of you would say, oh, of course, he would ask. If you died today, would you go to heaven? That's a good question. Did Maybe perhaps they would ask the question, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And they would walk them through, you know, the Campus Crusade presentation or something like that. You know what his favorite question was? What do you think of Jesus? And what would you do with him? You know? And boy, you can just see the university soon. They get over the shock, and then suddenly they're hooked, and they're into this deep discussion. Who is Jesus? And if Jesus is who he is, then I've got to take him seriously. I've got to take everything he says seriously, and I've got to make a decision about what he says. You see? That was a wonderful question, and Jesus used that same question. He says, who do you say I am. You see, you cannot ignore Jesus if Jesus is the Christ and he is the son of the living God. You can't ignore him. You can't dismiss him. You can't just write him off, you see, because it's way too important. Well, Jesus went on in verse 18 then, and he gave some promises about the church. He was going to establish the church And he said this in verse 18, and he says that he will build his church on this truth, that he is the Christ and he is the son of the living God. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church, he says. Now, some people have looked at this and they say, well, rock also means uh, is the Greek word Petra, so it must mean he's going to build his church on Peter. Is that true? No, because there's two forms of the word rock. And Peter is the masculine form, and then the rock that he's going to build on is the feminine form. Now, it has nothing to do with gender. It's just that they're different. They're two different words. The word for Peter is Petros. The word for this rock is Petra. One means a small stone. That's Peter. And then the Petra is the foundational stone. What is going to be the foundational stone of the church? That Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ and that he is the son of the living God. That was the foundation of the church. That would be the foundational truths of the church. Now notice here, he also says, I will build my church. Okay? Jesus is not going to share this with anybody. This was going to be his church. He is the architect, the owner, and the head of this church. Now, this teaching is also supported in other passages. If we had time, we would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, is the cornerstone. So Christ, uh, the church, is built on who on, on Christ with the help of the apostles having a contributing factor. But the main foundation is going to be Jesus Christ. And then that was his first promise. His second promise, Jesus promises the church is going to be victorious. Look at the second part of verse 18. 
and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then he says, <clears throat> he says, the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, the gates refers to a place of authority where major decisions are made. Hades is the place of punishment for the spirits of unbelievers. And the only way to get into Hades was through death. That's the only way that it happens is that you are transported by death. So in a way, what Christ was saying is he was saying Satan's authority and his ultimate weapon, death, will not overpower the church. Will not overpower the church. You see, some people today are so afraid of Satan. They are so afraid of death that they cannot fully do what God wants them to do. And so Jesus, right off the bat, says, I know some of you out there, you're going to be afraid to be believers. You're going to be afraid to base your life on the fact that I am the Christ and I'm the son of the living God and all of those things. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Satan's not going to get you and neither is death. You ought not to be afraid of those things. The church will be victorious. And then also, he goes on in verse 19, he says something very significant. What does he say there? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now, what does this mean? As the church does according to God's word, as the church is faithful to the ways of God, they will have God's support. They will have his authority behind them. You see, keys were often seen as signs of authority, control. And he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of God. And whatever you do on the earth, if it's according to my will, you have my full support. You see, again, as believers, we sometimes are so fearful We're fearful of going places. We are fearful of talking to certain people. We are fearful of declaring what God's word says in certain audiences and certain venues. And God says, don't do that. When you do things that I want done according to the way I want it done, he says, you will have my full support and you will have my full authority to do so. So, These are the promises that God has given. He says, I'm going to build this church. I'm going to build this church. No matter what the world says, no matter what people think, I will build my church. And this church will have power and it will have authority. Wow. That's pretty amazing, don't you think? But how many churches actually live like that? How many churches actually perform that way? How many of them are basking in that kind of promise? Very few. Sometimes we're just given into pleasing people. <laughs> we're into pleasing society. We're into pleasing I don't know what. <laughs> but everything but God. And God says, you don't have to be that way. You really don't have to be that way. The church can be on the march. The church can go on and do what God wants it to do. Now, what is the mission of the church then? I mean, you know, there's so many things the church can be doing, right? What should the church be doing? Well, for this, we've got to turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 
Now, some of you are going to say, but I just heard a message on that two, you know, two weeks ago. I heard that from uh, Brother Doug Erdman, okay? And so uh, he did a fine job, but I know that many of us probably weren't able to be there. So uh, th- this may be a help also to, to clarify things, okay? And so the mission of the church is to make disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, okay? Now, as we get into this, it would be helpful to give a definition of a disciple, all right? A definition of a disciple? Well, I know what a disciple is. Man, you kind of get more basic than that. But I'm going to do it a slightly different way. I want to show you that the, the definition of a, of a disciple can be taken two ways. It can be taken two ways. Number one, it can be taken in a personal dimension, in a personal dimension. And if that is what a disciple is, is involved with, then it is involved with what? What does this involve? Well, for this, I went to my dear friend, Anthony Evans. And Pastor Evans has a way of saying things very succinctly, but very clearly. And so I like what he says. He says this, uh, discipleship on a personal dimension level is this, a growth process by which we Christians learn to progressively bring all of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Whoa! You see? That's the whole thing. Is that we get to the point in our life where all of our attitudes and all of our actions are under the leadership and the lordship of Christ. Isn't that amazing? And you know and I know that there's so many areas in our life It's going to take a while. (laughs) So that's why he says progressively, okay, progressively, we move toward that end. And another way he says it is Christ wants more of you today than he had yesterday. And he wants more of you tomorrow than he has today. Now, how many of us can say that? How many of us can say honestly? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands here. But how many of us can honestly say I have surrendered more areas of my life today than I had yesterday. Okay? You see? That is discipleship on a personal level. But it also takes on a corporate dimension. In other words, as a church. The church becomes involved with this as well. And so, he also said this when he comes to the church part. And he says, discipleship is a developmental process of the local church by which Christians are brought from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so that they can reproduce the process with others, which the Bible calls being conformed to the image of his son. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about this transformation process that goes on in our lives. For example, example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, He says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then again, in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, uh, we find this verse. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. It said, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. You see, become like his teacher. So, the discipleship goal then is to bring people from infancy to maturity. 
at the end point, they are more like Christ than when they first started out. Okay? That's the process. That's the discipleship process. But what? how might this look in a church? Perhaps GBC, for example. What would this look like? Now, I'm flashing up a slide that some of you have seen before, and I hope that, but I've added a few things, and so I hope that it'll be helpful for you. So the next slide, please. Can you see it? Hard to see, isn't it? We might have to change the lettering, okay? So the first part is centered around all this is exalting God. We want to please God, okay? God is the foremost in our thinking. Then if you go straight north, you go straight north, how does this happen? It happens with evangelism. It happens with telling people about Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross and rose again from the grave for their sins. And hence, there's the chance of eternal life. There is the, the, the forgiveness of sin. Then it goes on to edify. The word edify. What does edify do? It builds them up. It gives them the nuts and bolts of the thing. When I was in the uh, uh, armed services, your equivalent of your NS, okay, they have what they call basic training, all right? They showed us how to salute, how to march. They showed us how to shoot a gun, okay, uh, a weapon, all right? The basics of being a soldier, okay? In the same way, we want to prepare the people. We want to give them the basic truths and foundations that they need. Then the next one is equipped. The next one is equipped. Equipped for what? Well, every the Bible tells us everybody has a special gift. Well, why don't we help them maximize their gift? You see? And so if it's teaching, let's help them maximize their gift. Let's equip them for that. And then this, the next E is engage. After we have edified them, we've equipped them, then we move them into the place where they can use that gift. This isn't rocket science, folks. This isn't rocket science, okay? And then the next one is to encourage. I found sometimes that churches leave the, that, that uh, sixth, one, two, three, four, five, six, the sixth step out, okay? We leave the sixth step out. We put a person in the ministry, and then we forget about them until they tell us they don't want to do it anymore. Then suddenly they remember who they are. We give them no pension. We give them no CPF. We give them nothing. And then when they say, I've had it, I've done, I'm gone, then we say, oh, then we take mention of them, you see. And he says, no, we've got to keep encouraging one another in the faith, you see. And so all of those things begin to happen, you see. That's how it could happen here at GBC. How do we make disciples, you see. How working together we can accomplish this mission of taking people from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Now, Jesus went on, and he shares, he shares with us, he says, the mission is disciple-making. Okay, at least we forget that. At least we forget that this may all happen. Is that he, he gives us in verses 16 through 20. So this is in Matthew chapter 28. And he says in verse 16, for example... He says, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Jesus gathers all his disciples again to say, what's next? What's next? You know, you died on the cross. You rose again from the grave. You're with us. But what's next? 
Some didn't know what was next. Some weren't prepared for what's next. And that's why Jesus gives them this, uh, this what we call the Great Commission. And the mission is disciple-making. I want, several, I want you to notice several things. In verse 16, uh, verse 18, I'm sorry, in verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Now, why am I starting there? Because Jesus says he is in charge of this process. Whenever people are doubtful, whenever people are confused, they need leadership. They want leadership. Jesus says, I'm giving you leadership. He says, I am in charge. And that word, when he says all authority, the word authority means in legitimate hands. Christ is rightfully in charge. He's saying to them that are doubting. And so some of us also may be at a point of confusion. We may be at a point of doubtfulness. What is next? What's going to be happening? And Jesus says, I am in charge. Don't worry. I'm taking care of this. And that should be a comfort to us. And then he issues a command. Now, the command is found in verse 19. And some people sometimes think it's the word go. But that's not actually what the command is. The command is make disciples. That is the actual command. Make disciples of all nations. Now, one's decision for salvation is not the final destination. It is only the beginning of the journey. It is only the beginning of the journey. And notice here that he says that when we make disciples, he says make of all nations. Now, remember, the disciples were Jewish. And it would be most natural for them to say, oh, it means to the Jewish people only. But he said to all nations. That means all peoples, he was saying to them. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm temporarily filling in as missions chairman. And so I get all these requests and I get all of these. I, I get to hear people saying I have this idea about missions and all this kind of stuff. And so it's very exciting to me. The fact that, you know, GBC Missions is now ministering amongst all kinds of different people. Uh, for example, we're min- I'm so thankful that we're ministering among uh, Thais. We are ministering among Indonesians. We are ministering among Cambodians on, you know, in their countries. But also here, we are also ministering to uh, Filipinas. We're, you know, uh, Indians and some other people that have come to our church. And so we're in all, in a way, we are ministering to all nations in some way. Not all yet, but we'll get there. And so we are ministering to all nations. And it's important that a church have that all nation mentality, that all mission mentality. And so the command is make disciple of all nations. But then how are we going to do this? Well, Jesus says we're going to go do it. And there's three things that have to happen. And that's where, if you're an English major, you would know that go, the word go, baptize, and the, the word teach are all participles, which means that they are descriptive words. They are words of how you're going to do something. And so the first one is go. Uh, another way of saying it is going to people. As you are going, as you are living, as you go spread the gospel, share Christ uh, becomes a normal part of life, he says. As you are living, 
going about life as you are sharing intentionally the gospel, he says, you have to go to people. You have to go to people. Now, GBC has been such a blessing to me and Effie and and indirectly to our children. It's just been incredible to be here with you. But may I encourage you in one particular area, and that is to go to people. Please go to people. You know, I know that you see your friends and, you you know, longtime friends only once a week, and you want to share with them. You want to tell them the latest joke you heard. You want to share with them the greatest blessing that you've had or maybe the greatest problem you have in your life. I understand that. But, you know, God is bringing people to this church, and we have to go to them. They're not going to come to us. We have to go to them. Introduce yourself. And then in some way find out if they do know Christ as their Savior, all right? And then introduce them to other people in the church. We have to go, people. You can't just sit here and expect everybody to come to us. Jesus said, go. And then the next thing he says is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And why is baptism so important? Because baptism is an outward symbol of what has happened inside of you. You see, you're sitting here looking at me. And you're saying, I'm a believer. I'll take your word for it. But I have no way of validating that, you see. But I do know, to some extent, if you took the step of baptism, you're willing to declare your faith publicly, then I could. I have some evidence that God is really a part of your life, you see. And so it's a matter of identification. If you look at Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, It says it so clearly in Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 3. Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 3. And it says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with them through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might walk in newness of life. And so it is an identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unto what? New life. Unto new life. And so that's why it's important that people ultimately make the decision to be baptized. Now, do some people take a long time to be baptized? Oh, you bet. Oh, you bet. Some because they know the significance of it. They know that it's coming out for Christ. And they know the impact it would have on their family. They know what impact it might have on their job and so on and so forth. So people have millions of different reasons. But the point is, it's an act of obedience. It's a way of declaring your faith in Jesus Christ. Identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you're holding off on doing that, and there's no particular reason that there, there, it, it just comes down to a simple obedience, then it's time for you to get baptized. And so this becomes important. Then the next thing is teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Now, when you look at this particular uh, verse, you might say, well, notice here that God puts that last, that last. Does that mean it's last in significance? I don't think so. I don't think so. What that means is that it's something that's ongoing. It's something that's ongoing. We all continually need to be taught. 
We all need to continually be learning. You see? And that's something we're going to be doing all the rest of our lives. And so teaching people the truths of God, giving us, uh, having the information and knowledge God wants us to have and to be equipped with the skills to apply the truth into daily life. You see, I learned very early, and, and I'm so thankful that over the course of my life, and I'm sure across yours, I know that for sure, you've had wonderful teachers of the Word of God. And some of them can really unravel the deep truths of God magnificently. You make the most difficult concepts easy to understand. But I realized that there's one more step that's very important. And that is, how do I take this truth and apply it to my life today? And that's where teaching has to end. That's where teaching has to go. That's the ultimate end. I teach you the truth, and then I help you to live the truth. Okay? I help you learn the truth, and then I help you live the truth. You see? And that's what we have to do. That's where the teaching comes in. And so, if you look at the word observe, to observe, it means to guard, to keep. Uh, Another way would be to follow, to obey, to live out in daily life. You see? It's not observing, just crossing your hands and saying, oh, that's, that's nice truth, you know. But it's actually taking it and living it out. So, the church begins to do all these things. And so, our mission is to make disciples of people. Uh, under the Lordship of Christ, by going to them, baptizing them, and teaching them. Now, this mission is vital, as we learned at the beginning of the message. The church is God's divinely established and empowered agent to carry out his plans and purposes on earth. It is As a church, it is essential you and I stay vigilant and strong. You know, just because Satan will not win the war doesn't mean he has stopped fighting battles. You ever thought about that? Just because he's lost the war doesn't mean he stops fighting battles. Satan continues to try to destroy, divide, and distract the church. That's a tremendous problem in many churches today. Constantly being uh, divided and distracted. And he's done this uh, throughout the ages. He continues to erect barriers between believers by way of personalities, practices, procedures, and programs. If there's any way that Satan can get his foothold in any church is that he starts dividing believers and over these things. And then, so we must be uh, strong and vigilant to avoid this in our attitudes. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In our actions, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, when I, find, when I come, I find you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see? And so, this is the, the, what we need to do. If the church is going to fulfill its mission, it's got to stay strong, and it's got to stay vigilant. It's got to stay unified. As God's people, let us get behind the church by trusting in God's promises and carrying out the mission given to us by Christ. To do otherwise only will bring condemnation, conflict, and chaos. Let me end with this story. It was so powerful when I read it. I hope I can do it justice. But there was a church, and outside the church there was a sign. And the sign read, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Well, as time went on, the church 
began to become apathetic. It became just ho-hum. It's just a routine. It's a thing we do on Sunday. Okay? The church lost its, 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 its mission, its sense of purpose. Okay? And so suddenly, what happened is the church began to fall into disrepair. And what happened is the thing started growing over the signs, but nobody bothered to cut it. And so what happened is that the growth wiped out the word crucified. So the word crucified disappeared. It should disappear. Yes, it disappeared. All right. The word crucified disappeared from the sign. So all that the sign said was, we preach Christ. Time went on and the church continued to go downhill. Soon the word Christ was overgrown, but nobody cut back the growth. So Christ disappeared. Yeah, amen. All right. Suddenly the sign, only part of the sign you saw was we preach. Then the growth began to spread and the word preach disappeared. And the only thing left was the word we. That was the only word. But when the only word on the sign of the church is we, soon the church becomes a darkened place with no purpose. You see? And so what I'm trying to say to you is that it's so important that we understand God's church, that we understand the mission of the church, and we stay faithful to it. Otherwise, all that we have is we. Let's pray. Father, help us to be your church in these times.